calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hey, Keegan. Hey, hey. (laughs) Want a drink and talk about temperance? Absolutely. I've already got my White Claw. I've got a mango flavor right here. Mango, do you? I'm just going classic Cabernet as usual for me. You know what? This is one thing that has really bummed me out about turning 30. I've talked to other people about turning 30 and they're like, oh, my tolerance for alcohol just like plummeted or whatever. And I have terrible hangovers. And I'm like, you know what? I don't really have terrible hangovers except with wine. Like something happened to me when I turned 30, like wine, which I used to be able to just crush, you know, like now I have like two glasses of wine, especially red wine. And the next day headache city man it's a bummer it is a bummer it's just it's funny I my drinking habits have just slowed I think so much like in the beginning of the pandemic I was drinking like gin cocktails when I got home from work yeah you had to find creative ways to stay entertained yeah you're you're home all day but now I'm just kind of like I don't want to drink very much but I still you know so I have a couple glasses of my red wine at night but I've noticed Max turned 30 God, he's 31 now, so it's been over a year, but I definitely noticed, and especially from stories from his friends from when he was younger, he gets hangovers so easily. Ugh. Like, he's had two hangovers in the past week. Just Poor from like thing. I, just from drinking beers at home, and I'm like, are you drinking enough water? <laughs> like, maybe what's not. What's going on? Yeah, so like, let's just give our listeners lots of tips on how to consume alcohol. Make sure you stay hydrated. Maybe pop an Advil before you go to bed. Yes. It's a great way to start our temperance episode yes exactly make sure that you have everything that you could possibly need the next morning for you by your bed so you don't have to get up yes uh, yes that is one thing that happens as you get older and you become more responsible like I don't care how drunk I am the night before I get the bottle of Tylenol and put it by my bedside with a glass of water because my future self is going to thank me. Okay. I also have to put, (laughs) I also have to put a trash bin by my bed because 
I throw up <gasps> often. Oh, no. Yes. This is why we talked about this. This is why I can't black out. Because if I hit a certain level of drunkenness, my body just rejects all the alcohol in me and I'm vomiting like crazy. So, oh. yeah, I always actually, if I'm super drunk, I pray that I throw up the night before so that I won't throw up the next day because then it lasts like all day. That's and I'm actually just like shit. also, that's also true. That is true. If I ever get to that place, it is better to happen the night before than to, to go the next day. Because if it goes yeah, the next day, your day is ruined. Yeah, ruined. then I'm I'm a bathroom floor sick person. Like if I'm not feeling well, I get really mm-hmm. like hot and then really cold. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll lay like on the bath mat and then flip off the bath mat. Lay on the bath mat, flip off the bath mat. Head in the toilet, head out of the toilet. Oh. It's really fun. Oh, anyway. Oh. I feel like my mom why... listening to this is like having flashbacks of like just me being sick as a kid. I've just always been the same way. It's crazy. You know, um, if all of this sounds bad to you, Perchance, perhaps you would like uh, you would be interested <laughs> in joining <laughs> the temperance movement, a temperance movement of your own. A te- yes. So I, I chose temperance as a topic for this week, <laughs> <laughs> and, it made, and it made sense. It, it ma- did because make sense. we've been talking about it so much, mm-hmm. and I didn't really know anything about it, and it's such a huge part of the first wave that I'm like, there's got to be some good stuff in here, right? And there is, in there fairness. Is. There are some interesting people. There are some interesting events. But as a whole, it's a movement for buzzkills, in my opinion. Ooh, lordy <laughs> lord, look, look, look. There is nothing wrong with being straight edge. There's nothing wrong with deciding that, you know what? Alcohol's not my thing. I don't feel good about it. Um, and, you know, sobriety is the best option for a lot of people. And Definitely. I, and so I am in support of that if that is what you need. But I do think that I skimmed over a lot of the religious stuff about the temperance yes. movement because there there is a lot of interesting stuff surrounding the women's movement and and how that intersected um there are a lot of interesting things that intersect with the temperance movement but some of the stuff just feels like god said no to booze so don't do it and i'm like yes. well that's not interesting to me you know like yeah exactly it it's very much like kind of governing everybody else's business and there are there are some pretty valid I would say reasons you know so in the beginning like in the 1800s it was more so that moderation was encouraged according to prohibition.mobmuseum.org which was a great resource I found that resource and I was like this is fascinating I know but they said that Americans 15 years and older consumed at least seven gallons of alcohol a year but I'm thinking isn't that wild wait seven gallons of alcohol a year I probably drink seven gallons. No. Well, a gallon no of milk, right? Oh no, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of like a jug of milk. I'm not thinking of a full gallon. Like a big sorry. gallon. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I was thinking of like a liter, not a gallon in my head. Oh my god, no, I don't drink seven yeah, gallons. Yeah, like I tried to drink a gallon of water a day for a while. Um and I think <laughs> Did you seven- explode? <laughs> so, I mean I kept up with it for a couple of weeks and I do I will say it my skin looked great but you are Were you peeing, in the bathroom all day? Yes, you are peeing all the time like literally every 10 minutes but 7 gallons of alcohol as somebody who is a regular drinker I don't 
I don't know that I consumed seven gallons. Yeah, it's a lot. So alcohol abuse was rampant. And so temperance advocates argued that this would lead to poverty and domestic violence and lots of other issues. And it was kind of, I feel like this was when maybe people were starting to be a little selfish, like aware of what their drinking might be doing to others as well. Because in 1840, there were six alcoholics in Baltimore, Maryland, that founded the Washington Movement, which is one of the earliest precursors to Alcoholics Anonymous. I and, did and, find that very interesting. Yeah, they they follow something called teetotalism, and that's essentially like a name for like a capital T, which means total abstinence. So at first mm-hmm. it was kind of like moderation, be aware of how much you're drinking, that kind of thing. But then this um, Washington movement started the idea of total abstaining abstinence. completely. You know, um, Trump is a teetotaler. Just, oh, just a little fun fact. Because he doesn't drink, right? He does not drink, no. That is um, wild to me. But I'm sure yes. he does a lot of other stuff. You know, stuff. other stuff. But I did want to point out that the first thing that we saw kind of um, that was similar to a temperance movement in the United States was actually started by Native Americans. There, was, mm-hmm. there were Native American temperance advocates because during the 18th century, a lot of Native American cultures were really affected by alcohol and actually as a lot of Native American cultures continue to be. Um, but they well, were severely... Well, it was used in trade. So yes. that was, it was mm-hmm. a means for them to, you know, right. continue to mm-hmm. make trades with, you know, the colonists and things like that. So it was part of right. making a living for themselves. Yes. So as early as 1737, there were Native American temperance activists who actively began to campaign against alcohol, um, basically for the betterment of their people and for legislation to restrict the sale and distribution of alcoholic drinks in indigenous communities. And um, during the colonial era, leaders such as Peter Chartier, King Hagler, and Little Turtle, who resisted the use of rum and brandy as trade items in an effort, they saw it as an effort to protect Native Americans from cultural changes that they viewed as destructive. So, you know, they saw this incoming of, like, alcohol. They saw the way that it affected the community. They saw the... um, that it was an addictive substance uh, and that it like cut down on productivity and other things within these communities. And they tried to limit that. They saw it as something that was, so you're trading, you know, things of use furs yeah. and, and other things for something that you're bringing into your community. That's just a destructive. That's force. damaging. I mean, can you mm-hmm. imagine not knowing what alcohol can do to you and just having a bunch of drunken idiots around you all the time and nothing's getting done. You know what I mean? Like there just was no knowledge of... Well, and you're like, this is fun. It'd be, you know, like you're like, I'm having a great time. But It's like the beginning of the pandemic when you're drinking and you're like, I don't don't have to go anywhere. This is fun. This is great. And now I'm like, It's like when people go to college and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm not going to class because I'm just like, oh. Exactly. I I get to cut loose and drink all the time, you know? Exactly, exactly. Well, should we talk, should we jump in? Do you want to talk about anything more before the women get involved? Or should we kind of jump right into talking about women's involvement? Let's jump into talking about women's involvement. It's it's very dense, the stuff before that. And I feel like the stuff that we want to talk about and the stuff that the listeners want to listen to is talking about how the temperance movement kind of merged with 
the women's movement in a way. Right, yeah, because basically all you need to know about the stuff before that was that it was largely either a religious movement or it was very classist in that it was like, you know, rich people being like, look at all these pores, you know what I mean? Um, And that there was... It, it was somewhat difficult for people to separate themselves out from drinking alcohol because it was in everything. Like it uh-huh. wasn't like, you know, nowadays, like I, I'm reading that book or I read that book, The Five, that took place in Victorian England. And they talk a lot about how alcoholism and poverty intersect yeah. um, and how if you were trying to abstain from alcohol, it was very, very difficult because it was in medications. It was kind of all over the place as a very commonplace right, thing. Right. It wasn't just consumed for like a good time. Yeah. So it was very hard if you had an alcohol addiction to step back from that. And so people saw it as a moral failing, a moral weakness that you just weren't good enough to be able to stop doing it, you know? Right. I mean, there was some early treatments, some questionable, (laughs) you know, there was some recognition of alcoholism being, uh, what, how do I want to call it? Like a, like a medical problem almost, you know, like like, something you had to get, they definitely recognized at a certain point, like one of Jack the Ripper's victims actually was an alcoholic who was sent to an institution and um, for essentially rehab for her alcoholism. And it was recognized as a thing that you essentially had to be dried out from. Like you needed to go to a rehab to get it out of your system. That was something that was understood. Um, But if you did relapse, it was absolutely 100% kind of looked, not 100%, but very often looked at as a this is something wrong with it's your like a moral morals. failing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you are not strong enough mentally to be able to beat this thing. You know, and I think that. Sa- I mean, I've never struggled with addiction. Honestly, I am amazed that I skipped the addiction gene. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I must just have my mom's tolerance and whatever, because all of the. I mean, even my mom's side, we've got drug problems and stuff in the family. Both sides have addiction. When I think mm-hmm. about it, but. I'm very happy that I don't have that. But, you know, there I feel like there is such a stigma to this day. Like that hasn't Mm -hmm. stopped. I feel like there is something with people who suffer from addiction that feel like it's they're not trying hard enough or they're not strong enough and things like that. But it, it really is. It's it's a medical condition. It is so it's hard to to face having a dad who's an alcoholic who's never admitted to that you know it's not something that's easy to admit so I can imagine that even getting help at that time would be even more difficult than admitting that you have a problem today when it's already really yeah I mean and it was also very much viewed as a class issue as well you know which you're completely erasing the fact that these lower classes um their lives are very difficult, which oftentimes will drive people to substances as coping mechanisms um, to get through. So while the upper classes are able to kind of literally look down from their ivory tower and say, you know, like, look at these morally corrupt poor people, you know, without having to look at it within the larger context of what their lives are like um, or why people are in that situation. But, you know, to kind of lead into the women's movement, the other side of that is that you know, you have, uh, this was a problem that was rampant within kind of like poverty stricken communities and a, 
a problem with that was that alcohol was expensive. So they saw it as something that was being taken out of the home, um, away from like, uh, you know, home finances, being able to pay for food and things like that. And then in addition to that, um, the correlation between substance abuse or alcohol abuse and domestic violence within especially poorer communities, you know? Yeah. And it did start, you know, in the 1830s, it did start to kind of reach uh, the upper middle class women to at least fight for temperance a bit more, especially Mm -hmm. because, you know, they were saying during this time, there was like an influx of Irish immigrants that were there to take over as servants. Um, You know, the husbands made enough money. So they just had all of this time to kind of devote their time to this, which, you know, you have to remember that, I feel like, because the temperance movement, more so than the suffrage movement, I would say, is very white, middle class, privileged in some way Mm -hmm. women during this time um so it this is not going to be an intersectional super progressive we're here for this kind of thing there's some very interesting fascinating things that occur but we're not going to be totally on the side of (laughs) these activists all the time you know the i think the reason that we wanted to talk about this is because it is so closely tied with other women's movements and so you can't really talk about you know, the suffrage movement, the abolition movement, without talking about temperance, because all of these things are so interconnected, and they're all at play when it comes to these women, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, um, Amelia Bloomer, like all of these women, they, they did all of these things to kind of grow as activists, and as like political leaders, like, without being part of the temperance movement. I mean, Susan B. Anthony grew up in a home that was like a, a home that was very much like an ad- advocated temperance and things like that. Right, and I think right. it shaped them as far as like their political views um, and where it led them later on. So, yes, definitely. It, it's just it, it's not it's not intersectional when it comes to uh, not a know. single black person. Did I read about in this movement, I, could I didn't not find read about one. a single. I did not read about a single black person, but I did, however, read that black people were invited. Black women were invited to join the WCTU. Oh well, that's exciting. I missed that. Yeah, they were able to be members and they were recruited and that kind of stuff. So I, I talk about that uh, when we talk about Francis Willard a little bit. Um, so once the Civil War hit. There was kind of a sudden but temporary halt to the temperance efforts so that people could focus on the Civil War and things like that. Um, But states needed the tax revenue earned through alcohol sales, and many temperance advocates began to focus on abolition or the health of soldiers during this time. So the country needed the money from selling alcohol, and it was kind of like, okay, we'll put it on the back burner. We're not going to worry about it too much right now. And I do think that that is a good point. So, you know... While the movement itself is not highly intersectional, again, you know, what what I just said was that it, it kind of got these women politically active. And there was a scholar at the time, Ruth Borden, who stated that the temperance movement was, quote, the foremost example of American feminism. Um, and it, it really did get people interested. So when the Civil War kind of kicked off or before the Civil War kicked off, as was the case with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, uh-huh. they um, 
they were they became interested in abolition. It, it, they ran in those same kind of circles where they were meeting people, and in it was that, opening it, their minds to to other things. You know, yeah. In that way, there were intersections because it wasn't mm-hmm. like these women typically didn't just stick to one cause through their lives. Right. There oh, was yeah. uh, you know a multitude of things that they were dipping their hands into to help. So, in in that way. Their minds were broadened. And I think that the temperance movement also kind of gave way to that because for women in particular, domestic violence and having autonomy in the home, I feel like was a really important part. So that directly ties to suffrage in many ways. If women have the right to vote, then they can dictate their lives more easily. They can be seen as more equal to their husbands. This is kind of when they started talking about women having equal education to men and right. different equal things like that. wages and the right to own property. Those were all big talking points that were directly tied to the temperance movement because they yeah. were saying, you know, look, you got a guy who's beating up his wife every day and she has absolutely no recourse whatsoever. She can't she can't get a job. She can't vote. She can't own property. Um, so she was has divorce to stay. Legal? I mean, divorce was legal. Okay. Yes, there were people who were getting divorces, but I think culturally and societally, it wasn't super accepted. Yeah. Um, so it was it was difficult. And it also, you know, if you don't have a line of credit, if you don't have any property, how are you supposed to support yourself and your children? Like, exactly. it's, it's very hard hard and so it was keeping people in this situation um and yes we've talked about on this podcast that like domestic violence is not just a alcoholism issue right it's a much bigger issue than that but this was something tangible that they could point to and say like okay at least we can we we see a correlation between alcohol abuse and poverty and domestic violence so if we can maybe stem that it will (laughs) Help with the other things, you know. I mean, I think I think it definitely makes sense. It almost seems like that was an awakening to an understanding about domestic mm-hmm. violence in a way, because I feel like just speaking up about domestic violence, like if all of these women in the 1800s were to suddenly just start openly discussing being beaten by their husbands, I just don't see that happening. You know what I mean? Like that's a very personal, very um, would probably be seen as hysterics. Things like that. So I almost see like the temperance movement as being a way of voicing those opinions in a more like concrete manner. Well, I think it was a way of getting men, quote, morally upstanding men on their side by being Mm -hmm. able to say like, look, it's not men. We don't think the problem is men. We think the problem is alcohol. And we Uh, think the problem is like these particular men are morally weak. And so you need to allow women, good upstanding women, um, the ability to get out of these situations from these men. You know what I mean? And so then men, you know, who aren't like that, their egos don't get wrapped up in being like these women are saying that men are this or that they can say like it's the booze or whatever you know and so they can get on the side their side much easier i think yeah Um, that that was you know a a criticism of the movement from others that you know they would kind of pander to a patriarchal system a bit more mm -hmm. and things like that and i definitely think that it kind of depended on the person Really? Oh, yes. 100%. Because there weren't, there weren't that. I mean, the organizations grew and grew and grew, but I feel like they were a bit disjointed. It seems like a lot of 
individual temperance advocates kind of had their own way of going about things. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the vibe I got as well. I mean, and, and you see those divisions within all of these movements. So you right. saw those divisions within the suffrage movement and within the abolition movement um, of people who wanted to prioritize this, that or the other. And, um, you know, like, like we talked about with the abolition movement, not wanting to allow women into it or the women's rights movement, not wanting to allow black women to march with them. And then you see that in temperance as well, um, where there are temperance advocates who are women who are like, I want to fold in suffrage into into what we're doing. And others who are saying, no, no. we're going to split off and it's just going to be about the booze you know so (laughs) (laughs) it's just gonna be about the booze we only care about the booze so instead of just talking about dates and events I was very fascinated by two women in particular so we Mm -hmm. talked about this we're gonna kind of tell some of the stories of the temperance movement through talking about these women so I was very fascinated by Frances Willard as well as Carrie Nation and these women cannot be more different (laughs) they are complete opposites but it is it is fascinating so before we go into talking about Frances Willard um the women's Christian temperance union yes so that is kind of like the biggest like temperance like that was the one that was was the big one like across the country there were lots of little temperance unions I was gonna say it kind of built off of that to different cities Mm -hmm. and states and things like that but that was kind of the main yeah, to to the point where there were um, WCTUs. Wow, that's a little kind of hard mm-hmm. to say. Um, where there were women's Christian temperance unions for cities and states across the country. You know, like different branches, and they would yeah. have different presidents. You know, and then there'd be like one overarching president. Exactly, but it, it grew out of um, this spontaneous crusade against saloons and liquor stores that actually began in Ohio and started spreading throughout Midwestern United States during the winter of 1873 to 1874. So it consisted of 32,000 women who stormed into saloons and liquor stores in order to disrupt businesses and stop the sale of alcohol. So that's how it started. And it was officially organized in late November 1874 in Cleveland. And so the second president of the WCTU was... Frances Willard. Frances Willard, yes. So she, just to give like a short background on her before that, she she moved around a lot when she was young with her family. Uh, She was very religious. So she and her family were called Congregationalists, which I had never heard of, but apparently it is like a branch of the Protestant religion. Congregationalist. I have I am a Protestant and I do not know what I've never heard of that denomination. I would assume that it's extinct, maybe. Like maybe it's just kind of an old timey branch of the religion that was Yeah, there's probably something similar that exists now because there are so many denominations that there is probably something similar, but I've never heard of that one specifically. I also wanna just say that she went by Frank. To her friends. And I, I think that that, that is rad as fuck. It was in the Britannica article about her oh. that she went by Frank to her friends, which well, I'm just like, that is so cute. Well, <laughs> I mean, I was going to talk about this at the end because I haven't really even talked about her, but there was there was speculation about her sexuality later 
you know, well, she never historians married. have she she never married, and there is she some, was engaged, but she never married. So yeah, there's some. I'll read you when I get to it at the end. I'm going to read a little bit of her autobiography and and just talk about what certain people have like projected because obviously uh, labels and sexual identity was not really a thing during this time, so it's hard mm-hmm. to really uh, assign somebody that. But I do always find it interesting when we can find evidence of LGBTQ plus people in history, even if it's yes. not you know concrete evidence Mm -hmm. I I had wondered I mean and this was again was just me speculating but because we've done so many of these Uh um, there are certain things that like stand out to me that I'm like I'm gonna put a pin in that so uh, her going by Frank was one and then the second was that um, after finishing college she like peaced out and went on an extended world tour with a friend for two years and I was like oh so it's just you and you're like lady friend gallivanting around Europe she (laughs) and her personal assistant Anna would travel alone to all of her speaking tours. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't go too far into it because I don't even think because it's that we important. Don't, and we don't know anyway. We don't so know. Yeah, but I do. But, you know, just your your curious brain likes to be like, oh, what you into, girl? You know, like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? So she was born in 1839. Her father was a farmer, a naturalist, a legislator. He would go on to, I think, practice law at some point. Like, he was just kind of this, that, and everything. Her mother was a school teacher. Um, oh, so I was talking about the Congregationalists. They eventually converted to becoming Methodists as a family. Oh, well, okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then as she was older, she she actually had a, a pretty good education growing up, and then she went to, it's two words, Northwestern, not Northwestern College, but Northwestern Female College, and she held various teaching jobs throughout the country as a young adult, and she eventually became president of the newly founded Evanston College for Ladies in 1871. In 1873, it went from Evanston College for Ladies to become the Women's College of the Northwestern One Word University, and she became the Dean of Women. Right, yeah. So she was the president of Evanston College for Ladies, um, which was a Methodist institution. And when it was folded into Northwestern University, she became the dean of women and a professor of English and art. I thought it was interesting that during this time, she became engaged to the university's president, Charles H. Fowler. And mm-hmm. they split when things got weird. Like they just kept having like they, they split up. And then things got really weird between them. They just kept having fights. Because can you imagine working with your ex? It's like he's the president and you're like the dean of women. And like you have to work together. So they were just having arguments like all the time. And she was like, you know what? I'm a dip. And she resigned in 1874. Yeah. And that was the same year that she participated in the founding of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And at first she was elected to be the first corresponding secretary And during that first year that she was in the Union in 1874, she went on a 50-day speaking tour, and she did a lot of speaking and traveling, especially during the first 10 years that she was in the WCTU. So she would do, like, 50-day speaking tours. She would travel an average of 30,000 miles a year, giving an average of 400 lectures a year. And like I said, that continued every year for 10 years, and mostly with the assistance of her personal secretary, Anna Adams Gordon. (laughs) Yeah, she spoke in every state in the union, and eventually she resigned as president of the Chicago branch of the WCTU in 1877, um, and she worked briefly as director of 
of women's meetings for an evangelist, Dwight L. Moody, but she later left the national WCTU in large part because the president at the time, Annie Wittenmeyer, she did not want to link the issue of liquor prohibition with women's women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. And uh, Frank, Frank Willard, our friend <laughs> Francis, um, she was like, nah, I I think that those issues are interconnected and yeah. did go on to give lectures not only for temperance, but also for women's suffrage throughout yeah. that entire time. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I have here in 1879 that she obtained the presidency. Did we already say that? Yes. Oh, no, we didn't. Okay, so in 1879, she obtained the presidency of the WCTU, which mm-hmm. is the main the main guy, right? The, the right, big yeah. overall so she, organization. She succeeded Wittenmeyer. So she yes. left the WCTU because of Annie Wittenmeyer. They, they didn't, they clashed. They didn't see head to head because of women's suffrage. And it actually turned out that more women within the temperance movement were kind of on board with the idea of suffrage than weren't. Yeah. Um, Partially probably because Frances assisted, you know, with the help of her secretary in securing 100,000 signatures on a home protection petition that requested that the Illinois legislator grant women the vote in matters pertaining to the liquor trade. So a lot of women within the temperance, uh, within the temperance movement, I think saw this as an opportunity and they were like, even, I think they were convinced, even if they hadn't been convinced previously that they wanted the right to vote, they were like, look, we can actually have some political power here to make um, prohibition happen. Well, and we gain the, the right home, to vote. Definitely. And the home protection argument kind of helped bring a broader spectrum of women in as mm-hmm. well because of it being, you know, about suffrage and not just about the booze, like we said, you know, and it spoke more to the average everyday woman. It wasn't just about domestic violence and more of these extreme things. It was about just having your own protection over your life and your home and your family, which I think right. mm-hmm. a lot of women obviously would resonate with and want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wittenmeyer was out. Willard was in. Frank and she remained. In. The Frank is in the building. Oh, and, I just keep thinking um, of my dad now. We can't call I her know, Frank. Sorry. Oh, God. I When you said it, I didn't think of it. When I said Frank, I got this like, Ugh. Ooh. <laughs> But she remained president of the WCTU for the rest of her life, which is a huge accomplishment. Like she was never voted out. Nope. They liked her. They really, really liked Frank. Um, (laughs) So one thing that would pop up as problematic to other activists later in life is that she really uh, focused on bringing the temperance movement to the South. And that rubbed a lot of abolitionists and suffrage, uh, you know, leaders, kind activists. of mm-hmm. activists, thank you, the wrong way. Um, she would even meet with former Confederate leaders. She met with President Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, and there was even a writer that was a former Confederate sympathizer that she was going to work with, all just to try to get the temperance movement to be more prominent in the South. And I believe it was, I, I didn't write this down, but I believe it was Rutherford B. Hayes that she had stuck like a temperance button on or something. And he was like, no, I don't support this. And so after that, she kind of like lost that battle with trying to kind of bring the temperance movement into the South at that point. So, Right. But I mean, that kind of speaks to, 
I, I didn't read anything really about Frances Willard being an abolitionist. So She's I not. don't think it was very high on her priority list. She's like, it, it, it's the same issue that we see or that we saw and talked about um, in our first wave feminism episode, as well as when we talked about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony in that she definitely sacrificed <laughs> black women a lot um, yeah black people kind of and i think that she's a fascinating person but she absolutely threw women of color especially under the bus did and, not include them in, in suffrage men. oh mm-hmm. i mean the rhetoric surrounding black criminality in black men that she mm-hmm. pushed is so harmful right like, in in the it's exactly what we were talking about when we were talking about the push for the right to vote they were basically saying like we can cancel out the black vote like if you want if you want prohibition to be passed because a lot there were men white men who were now advocating for that um for prohibition because of religious reasons or whatever else they were saying well you know if you're going to let black men vote, they're not going to vote with you on prohibition, but women will. So yeah. we're going to we're going to partner with <laughs> essentially white supremacists. Yeah. Like in order to make this happen. Definitely. Um, well, and I think her way of going about quote unquote feminism is interesting because she was such a religious person. They say that she would interpret scripture in a quote unquote feminist way, claiming that divine and natural laws called for equality in the American household with mother and father sharing leadership, which is actually that's extremely progressive, very progressive. There is a, there's a quote from the Bible that says God sets male and female side by side throughout his realm of law, which she saw to be meaning that women and men should be side by side in manners of education, church and government. So to me, that's kind of a, a fascinating way of interpreting the Bible in a not harmful way where it's, I feel it's like very it's weaponized a lot, you know? Yes. It, it's interesting as someone who grew up in a evangelical household. Right. Um, that is not typically the way that the Bible is interpreted. There are other pieces of scripture that kind of very explicitly state that the man is the head of the household. Definitely. And that is definitely how it is interpreted most of the time. So it is interesting that this very religious woman um, would interpret it that way and, and not see it as being conflicting with her beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Feminism. I mean, I think I think that she... To me, it sounds like she was probably conflicted between her religious beliefs and her desires to have more rights and freedoms. Mm -hmm. So I think that when you are very tied to a belief, I can understand where you would start to interpret things the way that maybe you would want to see them. Yeah, you bend it around... Around, yeah. you, you, around your belief. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. So she was involved of a number, in a number of other um, movements, I guess. She was working against the international drug trade at one point, which kind of brought her to international recognition in 1883. She also helped in laying the permanent foundation for the National Council of Women of the United States. And she was the organization's first president in 1888. And she would stay for a couple of years before founding the world WCTU in 1888, becoming its president in 1893. So this chick was like the head of everything. Yeah, I mean, and this was, uh, she dedicated her life to temperance. Like, yes, also she was a suffragist, but really it was the temperance movement that defined her life. Like this was 
her crusade for sure and she was constantly trying to merge the wctu with other more political parties and oftentimes facing a lot of opposition to that um she tried to merge with the prohibition party in 1882 to 1884 um but the prohibitionists of the prohibition party objected to women being in the institution Mm -hmm. essentially and also women of the WCTU didn't really want to be involved in party politics so she kind of had it on both sides she's trying to like pull these people together and they're trying to pull apart they don't want anything to do with each other really yeah so I want to talk a little bit about some of the problematic aspects that I read involving Francis and Ida B. Wells actually so dear yeah there's some tea so while temperance advocates were obviously advocating for the, you know, abolition of alcohol, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Prohibition, they, yeah. Thank you. Um, just throwing in all the words there. It works. Um, it it works. I mean, yeah, you're abolishing it, I guess, whatever. But they would use black criminal criminality. Criminality? Can I talk tonight? Yeah, that works. Um, <laughs> God. They would use black criminality and kind of like the fear of black man's violence as a way to push women to become involved with the movement as kind of like a fear tactic. So listen, yeah, it's not black men that you're marrying that are beating you. Exactly. It's the white white men you're marrying. So Wells and Willard were both on a speaking tour of Britain in 1893 because they're both huge speakers. They're both traveling around. All these people know each other. You know what I mean? It's just crazy how so many of the same names show up Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. So they were on a speaking tour in Britain in 1893 where Ida B. Wells openly questioned Francis's silence on lynching in the United States and accused her of pandering to the racist myth that oh. white women were in danger of rape from mm. black men to gain more support from female Southerners. I love Ida. We love Ida. We're a pro-Ida podcast. We're a pro-Ida podcast. She also recounted a time that Francis had visited the South and blamed the failure of, temp- of and blamed the failure of the temperance movement there on the population that was mostly black. Mm. So in retaliation Francis kind of doubled down writing a statement that said the attitude of the society toward the I can never say this word on the first try barbarity the attitude of the society toward the barbarity of lynching has been more pronounced than any other association in the United States which Pardon? yeah not true so to kind not of like true. placate Ida and I would assume a lot of other very angry abolitionists Ugh. the WCTU uh, where did I write that? Passed a resolution against lynching, but they didn't change their racist rhetoric on their it speaking tours. Is that? Oh, I feel triggered. Um, because yeah. her <laughs> saying that is so similar to the kinds of things that we hear now. Uh huh. Like it's it's so similar uh-huh. to this. It's the same along the same lines of the, as the things that we hear now. Essentially saying like. This is a non-issue. Like people are always worried about about racism. I don't know what you're talking about. It's so gaslighty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's telling somebody that their experience, what they know to be true, is not true. That they are overreacting, and that everybody care. Everybody knows lynching is wrong. It's the same thing you hear whenever the police kill an unarmed black person, and everyone says, "Well, everybody knows that that's wrong." Everybody, like, what's? Why are you making such a big deal? Yeah, you, you know, yeah. like, and it's it's. Oh, I mean, I also see a parallel in the kind of Band-Aid solutions 
that they did. You know, it's like we're going to oh, pass yeah. this resolution oh, yeah, yeah. and symbolic we're going to change yeah, a lot of symbolic gestures, but mm-hmm. no real change in, in the rhetoric mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. they were bringing out to the world, which Gross. is, again, perpetuating. That's as probably a huge contributor as to why those things stuck around for so far too long you know what i mean well, like the very blatant obvious racist yeah, rhetoric yeah and again it's it's setting your priorities we had that conversation whenever we did our episode earlier this month um you know it's it's deciding even if you were to say yeah everybody knows lynching is bad but i'm not gonna say anything to ruffle any feathers about lynchings because yeah. my priorities lie with white women mm, <laughs> that's where my yeah. priorities are yeah um and again you can say well they did this because i needed to get it done or or whatever but there were activists at the time at the time who were able to focus on more than one issue exactly yeah you know they were so, just kind of pushed aside and silenced a lot of the time unfortunately which is just upsetting um, to go a little bit into her religious evolution to the end of her life, and we're almost done with Frances, in 1893, she was influenced by the British Fabian Society and became a committed Christian socialist. So according to Wikipedia, Christian socialism is, quote, a religious and political philosophy that blends Christianity and socialism, endorsing left-wing politics and socialist economics on the basis of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Sounds confusing as hell to me. I mean, well, well, I mean, to me, actually, it doesn't sound that confusing because what Jesus taught could very well be seen as socialism or communism. Like it was a very much like help your neighbors um, mm -hmm, kind of thing. Yeah, everything for everyone and and kind of like sharing that kind of thing that I understand. Um, But it does make me wonder if her views, her more racist views changed at all with her old age as she went into more uh, what seemingly a more progressive headspace or sphere i wonder if yeah we don't know any of any of her opinions changed she did write an autobiography um called glimpses of 50 years i have not read it of course (laughs) but (laughs) yeah we read it we read it in like four days this week i read it in preparation for this episode no i didn't but um i do wonder maybe she does talk about that i I don't know because she she does talk about her relationships with women in her autobiography. I actually have a quote down where, you know, I was writing about kind of the speculation about her sexuality. So this is from the autobiography that Keegan just mentioned. The loves of women for each other grow more numerous each day, and I have pondered much why these things were. That so little should be said about them surprises me, for they are everywhere. In these days, when any capable and careful woman can honorably earn her own support, there is no village that has not its examples of two hearts in council, both of which are feminine. So that was kind of one example of her talking about her connection to the women around her. They do say that she was very, very, very close to her her co-workers and female friends. Um, Like I said in the beginning... There were no labels really for sexual identity at at this time, so I'm sure maybe Frances wasn't even aware of what she would label herself. But uh, looking back on it, historians are saying that she has what they're calling same-sex emotional alliances or what historian Judith M. Bennett calls lesbian-like. So whatever you want to I mean, take from that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to... I don't want to speculate too much about, like, what her sexual orientation was. Right. But 
even if it wasn't romantic, it does sound like she enjoyed the company of women and didn't see the need to be engaged in a romantic relationship or partnership with a man. Like she didn't, which I think a lot of women at that time, especially did feel like that was something that they needed to do. Um, And I also think like being a very religious person as she was, there's a lot of biblical emphasis on male and female unions mm-hmm. um, and that that's kind of like a necessary thing that God put in place for you to find someone of the opposite sex is very prevalent within especially Protestant Christian denominations. Right. So it is surprising to me that being a very religious person, she made her own decision about like, I actually think that yeah. there should be more, you know, kind well, of feminine she, on feminine energy. Unions. Exactly. And I mean, she did kind of use, like I said, she would interpret scripture differently than I think a lot of other people did mm-hmm. for whatever reason that was. I think she had a very different experience with religion and with the Bible as a lot of these women did than I think you and I ever did. You know, for some reason, there was there they were able to see it differently than the rest of society. Well, I think you have to. I think I think if you want both of these things, if you're trying to reconcile your own truth with your belief, you do whatever you have to do to make them coincide and exist within each other. I think you have to. Um, But I, I think there are a lot of people within the church who would argue that you know so it's like it's it's an interesting thing that that to me is very interesting um but i i like it actually i like that she was able to kind of like hold on to her faith and Mm -hmm. her belief system as well as kind of live her own truth yeah and and be admirable progressive in her own right and live her life Mm -hmm. you know yeah so i want to talk we got to talk about carrie nation our favorite she's a favorite oh she was so much fun a hoot and a half thank god oh my god thank god you told i mean i'd already read the article on the the mob website yeah (laughs) um which talked a bit about carrie nation which was great but then you kind of being like oh i love her so much i was like okay i'm gonna read a couple more things about her thank god because she's the most fun thing about this episode she's the most fun thing about the temperance movement she really is so (laughs) i'm we're gonna run long if i go into her whole childhood and everything but the basic things that you need to know was that uh she had a mother and a father she was in a bit of poor health when she was younger she didn't receive a real quality education her Um, father was a slaveholder which i just need to highlight real fast yes he was 100% a slaveholder and she and her second husband owned a cotton plantation for a little bit but they said that they were bad farmers so that's why well, it fell through so I don't know if they were working their own crops or yeah what. her father was a successful farmer stock trader and slaveholder but m- must not have been a very good business person because they lost it all and she actually grew up in poverty yeah so I imagine she probably I, I, I just highlight that to say how commonplace it was Definitely. to hold slaves um but I don't know that she really grew up with a, a lot of slaves or yeah, anything they like that. Don't, it's just, they don't say that. And I would assume that if she was in relative poverty through a lot of her life that they yeah, wouldn't probably be able to not, afford that. I would guess. Yeah. Um, her mother, who she loved dearly, suffered from delusions. She had mental illness. And some people have said that her mother was convinced that she was Queen Victoria because of her love for the finer things in life. So she, her mother, you know, was obviously struggling with severe mental illness. And actually in the final years of her mother's life, um, 
Carrie's brother Charles put his mother in the asylum where she would live for the next, I think, three years until she died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I found, um, I think her name was Mary Campbell Moore's um, Find a Grave, <laughs> findagrave.com. Found, uh, I found Carrie Nation's mom. And it says there that Mary's mother, her maternal grandmother, brother, and sister all suffered from quote-unquote insanity. So interesting. Yes. Yes. Oh, and I forgot to say this about the son. So her son, Charles, was the one that admitted her to the asylum. But apparently Charles owed his mom money. So he's like, perfect. Let me just kick you into the asylum and I'll never have to deal with you again. Also, just a little bit more about Carrie Nation's background. Um, So it's Rocky, right? She's Mm -hmm. growing up very poor. Um, Her mother has all these mental health issues. She lost her mother to an institution before her mother passed away. And they also moved around often. So her, her father was a bad businessman, which was part of that. But also... Um, there was a rumor that they moved around so much because of her mom's mental health Mm -hmm. issues. So it would draw a lot of unwelcome attention to them. Um, There'd be a lot of stigma, of course, attached to her mental health problems. Yeah, but it's really... So they would move. It's really amazing the the empathy that Carrie grew throughout her childhood for her mother, though, because taking care of the mentally ill was something that she kind of did throughout her life. That was something that she felt very connected to. So she and her father assisted during the Civil War, helping the soldiers, all that kind of stuff. But then after the Civil War in 1865, she met a man by the name of Charles Gloyd. Charles Gloyd taught school near Carrie's family farm, and he was establishing a medical practice. He asked Carrie to marry him, and Carrie was eager to accept, but her parents did not approve of the wedding because they knew that Charles was addicted to alcohol, and this concerned Mary and George Nation very much. But the Or co- not Nation. Oh, uh, more. More. More, yes. So they married anyway on November 21st, 1867, but they separated a year and two months later. This marriage did not last very long. Well, and she left him when she was pregnant, when which she is was how you pregnant. know, like, she was pregnant with her daughter, Charlene, and that's how you know it had to have been bad in bad. the household, um, because... I don't feel like, especially at this time, I mean, who knows? Because Carrie Nation was a very strong-willed woman, so who knows? But I feel like it's very difficult when you're in that situation. She was big pregnant with her daughter yes. when she was like, I am i can't be here anymore. I mean, her um, her daughter was born months after they separated, mm-hmm. you know? And then and, and it was due to his alcoholism. Yes. It, it was, she couldn't handle being in the house with him. Yes, exactly. And... Charles Gloyd actually passed away the next year from his alcoholism. So even if they had stayed together, she wouldn't have had to deal with him for much mm-hmm. longer. But this was really the springboard for her to be a passionate activist against alcohol. Like, she hated booze. She hated booze. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine. She's yes. seen it, what, what it's done. I feel like oftentimes when people have experienced or have firsthand experience with people who have addictions or substance abuse problems, they oftentimes go one of two ways. It's either very adamantly against or 
they fall into it themselves oh, very often from what I've seen. I was so. such a buzzkill in high school because I was so anti-drinking. Like I was mm-hmm. like, I am an athlete and I am not. And then I also just had, you know, I, I, I had a lot of anxiety being around my friends when they were drunk in high school because the mm-hmm. only, you know, drunk person that I'd ever known was my dad. So that was something that was kind of like a weird thing for me to get used to when I was really young and realized that like not everyone that drinks is going to be mean um, and weird, you know. So I understand where, especially during this time, it was a very, very obvious reason for the end of her marriage. So I can see why that would be something tangible for well, her. Yeah, for her to this hold was on clearly to. someone that she cared about and loved and chose to marry, despite the fact that her parents were were not on board. Yeah. So it's hard whenever it's, it's someone that you love and then you have to see them go through this or you have to leave them even though you love them. Exactly. You know, yeah, it's traumatizing. And she she must have she must have created a very strong bond with her mother-in-law, who she called Mother Gloyd, um, because after her husband died, she sold her inherited land as well as her husband's estate and built a small home in Holden, Missouri, where she would live with her mother-in-law and her daughter. Um, and both her mother-in-law and daughter, I think as well, eh, maybe not mother-in-law, maybe just her daughter struggled from mental health issues as well. I think I'm getting the mom's thing confused in my head. Um she attended the Normal Institute in Warrensburg, Missouri, which just sounds boring. And she earned a teaching certificate in 1872. And she would teach in Holden, Missouri for four years while also getting a history degree and studying Greek philosophers and their influence on American politics. Now, I wanted to highlight this because she didn't get a very good education growing up. She had a very, very poor education. So the fact that she got a teaching certificate as well as getting a history degree and studying Greek philosophy and its influence on politics. Studying Greek philosophy and its influence on politics is so fascinating given her interests later in life. Yeah. Um, You know, especially given women's influence in Greek philosophy and culture like you know also kind of, of given her weapon but you know what i mean her weapon of choice is also a bit greek mythological <laughs> a little bit spoiler she remarried in 1874 to david a nation which is where she gets her last name he was an attorney a minister a journalist and he was 19 years older than her and already had some of his own children Like I said earlier, they had an unsuccessful cotton plantation in Texas because they were really bad farmers. So David started a law practice and Carrie went to operate a hotel. So she and her ex-mother-in-law, Mother Gloyd, and her daughter actually moved to another area of Texas with one of David's daughters, Lola, to work and operate this hotel. And... They say that this marriage as well was not a happy one. It was filled with arguments and contention, and there wasn't a whole lot of, I think, like there. It doesn't sound like they liked each other a whole yeah, lot. Yeah, well, I think Carrie was also very strong-willed. Very. <laughs> I think that she was just, like, very opinionated um, and not likely to back down or be quiet. And it seems very opinionated. Like, I'm almost surprised that she would la- that she would be married twice. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel yeah. like she's a very, very independent kind of woman. So after she had worked at operating that one hotel, she and David got together to op- to operate their own hotel in Texas. Uh, there was, I had never heard of this war. Texas is crazy to me. So David was involved in something called the Jaybird Woodpecker War, which sounds like it's a cartoon. I have no idea what that is. I yeah. looked it up and I don't remember what it is because it doesn't matter. 
Um, so they moved to Medicine Lodge, Kansas in 1889. So now we're in Kansas. And Carrie began her own branch of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was obviously founded by one of the founders was Francis Willard. And then she began campaigning to enforce Kansas's ban on the sale of liquor. So she started out with her protesting being simple enough, kind of your your everyday you know right so yeah she started it though because the u.s supreme court made a decision in favor of the importation of the sale of liquor in original packages from other states ah yes so there were already kind of like prohibition laws in kansas and them passing or like you know making this decision the supreme court it weakened those laws and that pissed her off because like she was a temperance advocate. So she was like, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start my own temperance movement in this part of Kansas because in my view, you guys bringing in booze from other states and starting these like flourishing saloons in my community when I think it's like a morally corrupt thing to do, um, that to me is illegal. So I have the right to do whatever I want to these establishments. And she did. She would serenade saloon patrons with hymns accompanied by her hand organ and greet bartenders by saying things like, good morning, destroyer of men's souls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I love her. I mean, it's funny. It's look. As someone who enjoys a good saloon, this is hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> so she was dissatisfied with the results of her efforts at first, and being a religious woman, she began to pray to God for direction. She felt that she received an answer in the form of a heavenly vision on June 5th, 1900. So this is what she said. The next morning, I was awakened by a voice which seemed to be speaking in my heart. These words, go to Kiowa. And my hands were lifted and thrown down and the words, I'll stand by you. The words, go to Kiowa, were spoken in a murmuring musical tone, low and soft, but I'll stand by you was very clear, positive, and empathetic. I was impressed with a great inspiration. The interpretation was very plain. It was this, take something in your hands and throw at these places in Kiowa and smash them. So... In response to that, she gathered several rocks, or smashers, as she called them, and proceeded to Dobson's Saloon on June 7th. When she arrived, she announced, Men, I have come to save you from a drunkard's fate, and began to destroy the saloon's stock with her smashers, with her rocks. That night, she would go on to destroy two more saloons in Kiowa, and shortly after, a tornado hit eastern Kansas, which she saw as approval from God for her actions, which I'm like, yes, bitch. Okay. I mean, but you also could interpret that as the opposite. Like, maybe he's like, hey, cut it out. I mean, you choose to see God's visions as you want to. It's all up to interpretation, right? I mean, I thought that... All (laughs) righty. So she continued her activism in this manner in Kansas, and her fame began to spread due to her growing arrest record. After leading a raid in Wichita, her husband joked that she should use a hatchet the next time for maximum damage. Carrie replied... Can you imagine being her husband? Like... He's got to be like, 
again. Again. You know, like really, like you're. She comes home from a long night of just smashing bar fixtures after up, being you know, in jail like, and arrested and being bailed out and like yeah, especially during this time, I I feel like he probably wasn't the proudest husband in the world, but no, you know, he's just like I don't know what else to do. With I'm you. just stuck I'll just with make you. jokes. Yeah, exactly. You know? So he says to her like, just use a hatchet next time. You'll like do more damage. And Carrie replied, that is the most sensible thing you've said to me since I married you. And she did it. I mean, she's that would that became her weapon of it choice. Did. Really. Yeah, I she mean, divorced and David so, and got a hatchet. <laughs> yeah, she's like, goodbye. Uh, and she started smashing up more bars with a hatchet. At one point, um, she actually invaded the governor's chambers in Topeka. Um, so, of course, she was jailed many, many yeah. times. She paid her fines from lecture tour fees and sales of souvenir hatchets. Um, and these souvenir hatchets <laughs> were inscribed with the words death to rum on them. Uh, and she earned at times as much as $300 per week from the speaking engagements yeah. um, and the sale of all of these like souvenirs. So, she became kind of like a, a nationwide sensation. Y- yeah. And so she kind of like she used the money that she made with the selling of these like souvenir hatchets and with making her speeches to pay off her jail fines. So she was able yeah. to kind of pay off her own bail herself out of prison and, or out of jail. Yeah, yeah, all of that. So I think it's funny that she would call her actions hatchetations. She said that she was arrested for hatchetations, which I just think is really funny. I agree. She described herself as, quote, a bulldog running along at the feet of Jesus, barking at what he doesn't like, which I think is a very accurate description now, of her. Now, while we... Here at your angry neighborhood feminist, love Carrie Nation. Yes. We think she's hilarious. Um, she was a very polarizing figure within the temperance community. Oh, yes. um, you think there were a, <laughs> there were a lot of people within the temperance community. Probably I I don't know this, but I imagine Frances Willard was not like woohoo. I don't think she you know, was inviting her woman. to speak with her anytime soon. I don't no, think that no, no, was. No, no. I don't think they were on the same wavelength there. No, I mean I mean she was almost like a. Like, I imagine she was, like, a very flashy... She was, like, the Elvis of the temperance movement. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, she was selling souvenirs alongside her own biographies. She was writing autobiographies at lectures. Well, and she wasn't um, acting very feminine. You know what I mean? So I no, feel like is, that is, would be kind of a deterrence to a lot of, like, the yuppie, white, middle-class temperance activists, I, you know? I agree, but it's kind of interesting because she wasn't acting quote unquote feminine. She was very opinionated. Yeah. She spoke her mind all the time. She, she had smashed at this point, two divorces. She smashed. She was arrested thirty with times. A hatchet. Yeah, all of these things don't seem very um, ladylike, know, like feminine. And and then she also did things like railed against fraternal orders, where she was just like, "I'm not into the patriarchy." But she also was opposed to tobacco, foreign foods, corsets, skirts of improper length, and mildly pornographic art that was um, found in barrooms at the time. She was so concerned about tight clothing that she refused to wear a corset and um, urged women not to we- wear them because they were harmful to their vital Which organs. Which is true. Listen to Carrie. I mean, it's true. <laughs> It is true if they're worn improperly, yeah. but but like I just think it's funny because it's just like she's so she's the opposite of Frances Willard. Well, she really is because she's so outspoken you, about all of these things, but 
like her behavior. Uh, I don't cr- know. Do, do you remember know. what she said after uh, President William McKinley was assassinated in 1901? I don't have it written she down. She essentially no. said that the killing was justified by saying that he was a secret drinker and drinkers, quote, got what they deserved. You see, like, this woman was wild. Like, it's the weirdest Well, she became, like, me. a legend because then bars all over the country started hanging these signs with the slogan saying, all nations welcome but carry. Like, she became this, yes. like, celebrity. And... Well, and she began working, like, she began touring in vaudeville. Like, she was performing, essentially, as herself I think it's, on stage. I think it's funny, though, because... They say that she was very good at sermonizing, but entertaining was, like, not really her strong suit. She felt like when she was, like, on that stage, she wasn't really, like, being listened to and things like that. So it didn't necessarily, like, it wasn't a very long-lasting vaudeville career. Um, She tried to have an act in London that uh, the contract ended and things like that. So when that fell through, she kind of went back to selling photos of herself, giving lectures, and then now she had miniature souvenir hatchets that she would sell. So she was still, you know, very much a a self-made woman, you know? Yeah, even though you can say that maybe she was like a little bit of a wet blanket for like, you know, not drinking, not smoking, being opposed to corsets and short skirts and porn. Um, (laughs) She (laughs) she was an advocate for women's suffrage. She conducted women's rights marches in Topeka, Kansas, and um, led hundreds of women that were part of the Home Defenders Army to march in opposition of saloons. So she was actively trying to get other women to engage politically. And um, I do think it's interesting. She's just kind of all over the map. Yeah, she's, you can't really, you can't really describe her or pin, or pin her in any sort of box. You know what I mean? Because she's so all over the place. Near the end of her life, she moved to Arkansas where she founded the home known as Hatchet Hall. And I actually read a really great um, blog post that was from, um, oh, where was it? I might have it written within my notes somewhere here. Um, but but anyway, Hatchet Hall was used as a boarding house and school as well as a home for battered women. So she was one of the first people to ever... They say that that was the first, like, what would become battered women's shelters. So without Carrie Nation, I don't know. You yeah. know, that was... Yeah, interesting. That was another thing that she was very, very passionate about. So she worked literally up until the last day of her life. She was giving a speech when she passed out. She gasped and said, I have done what I could and passed out. Wow. So they brought her to the hospital and she passed away on June 9th, 1911. Like she she died giving a speech at she was like at buying, Hatchet yeah. Hall. Like it's just crazy. Like she just really was so fully committed. So she was buried in an unmarked grave in Belton, Missouri, but later the Women's Christian Temperance Movement erected a stone inscribed, faithful to the cause of prohibition, she hath done what she could, and they added her name, Carrie A. Nation. Outside of her work in the temperance movement, she was known as Mother Nature for the charity and religious work she did. Believing that drunkenness was a cause to many problems in society, she began to visit and help those in prison, which I thought was really cool, where she would try to help them get over their addictions. She yes, also, you see, this is what I was talking about in the beginning. Exactly. Like, you have to take into account that like these things don't exist in a vacuum, and oftentimes there are reasons 
for to this day there are reasons we want to talk about like the dependence of certain communities on narcotics and it's like well maybe we should take a closer look at why why. yeah narcotics yeah exactly Mm -hmm. so she also created a sewing circle to make clothes for the poor as well as prepare meals for them on holidays. So she kind of had this great group of people that would like make clothes and cook and drop off meals and things like that for more of the impoverished people in their area. And she also established, like I said, a house for wives and children of alcoholics actually in Kansas City, Missouri. So I didn't mention this earlier, but she was actually told never to come back to Kansas City, Missouri, as a way of getting out of a jail fine, like years before, the judge was like, look, you don't have to pay the $500, which is like $1,500 in today's money, if I remember correctly. He's like, you don't have to pay the fine if you promise me you will never come back to Kansas City, Missouri. Well, she essentially built a, you know, a home for wives and children of alcoholics and like a battered women's shelter in Kansas City, Missouri. So she came back. And that is described as being an early model for today's battered women's shelters. And so I want to read a quote in conclusion from a website uh, or from a blog that I read from a website called onlyinark.com because Hatchet Hall is in Arkansas. And this, yeah, and this person, she talks about being like a Stephen King fan and it says Hatchet Hall. She's like, ooh, like what happened there? And she's like, oh, it wasn't like murdery. It was, you know, this woman or whatever. So she, much like us, was like, well, this movement sounds like a buzzkill. You know, I, I don't really... I don't really care, but she started learning more about Carrie Nation, and through that, she started to understand the temperance movement a little bit better. So this is what they said in this doc in this blog dog post. I wish this is what she said in that blog post. When I began to look at the situation through the lens of a world where women had very little power, very little ability to support themselves, no voting rights, and all the while trying to make the best of a situation with husbands who spent the family's earnings on alcohol and then come home drunk and angry, Carrie's extreme crusade began to make a little more sense. Mm-hmm. Which I think... Yeah, I mean, and that's how I feel as well about about the temperance movement. It's like, yes, I have personally no desire to join a temperance movement. Um, However, I understand why it existed and why it intersected so closely with women's rights movements and suffrage movements. It makes sense. Yeah. And as much as I didn't enjoy doing research for this, except for these two women, (laughs) I am very glad because I, I mean, I've mentioned it on the podcast, I think every week so far, like what is the temperance movement? Like, what is it? So I'm glad that now I can finally say like, I know. Right. I'm glad we did an episode on it because I think it's an important part of women's rights history that I feel like doesn't get discussed very often. It's often brought up in passing the way that we did bring it up. Um, and I feel like it's it's something that did need to be looked at a little bit closer and to look at these people like Carrie Nation who maybe aren't groundbreaking names in the women's rights movement or the suffrage movement. You know, it's not a Susan B. Anthony, but it is somebody who made strides and accomplished things. And yes, I don't see eye to eye ideologically with every single thing. Um, But I'm never going to also with with a lot of these figures. And I think that that's also something to keep in mind, especially when looking at figures from this far in the past. Um, You know, so I find it very interesting. And I am 
even though I know I texted you and I was like, I could not focus oh, I to had get a- my thoughts in order for this episode. I know. Um, I'm glad we I did it. I am too. I think that it, it creates a broader understanding, I think definitely of kind of the start of you know, kind of the domestic violence movements a lot. And what I think is interesting is that there are still temperance movements to this day. Technically, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers is a current modern-day temperance movement, which I think is Mm -hmm. really interesting. And I think that something, you know, during this time, temperance was teetotalism. You know, it was abstinence or nothing. But temperance as a whole has really it's evolved through time you know it was about moderation at first it went to abstinence Mm -hmm. you know so it is something that although we think of it as being so far away and not relevant anymore there is something to it that i find historically fascinating and understand why because i didn't understand why you know like still that yeah i mean and there's still that uh, I feel like being mindful, that's something that I've done with my drinking as I've gotten older, Um, just being really mindful about consuming and understanding, because there's a whole aspect of uh, the temperance movement that we didn't even talk about in that there were temperance advocates who were temperance, who were temperance advocates because of the negative effects that alcohol can have on your body. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they were starting to come to those conclusions that alcohol can have a negative effect on um, your physical health, your mental health. And that's kind of Um, what the movement is today too. It's still something that focuses on like research and, um, you know, realizing how alcohol is bad for our bodies and our health and things like that. So there is still, it's interesting that there is still some semblance of, what seems like a very archaic movement uh, to this day. Right. And it is, and it is, you know, we make a lot of jokes about drinking and everything because we enjoy it and there's nothing wrong with enjoying drinking. But I do think that kind of as a closing here, um, it is important to be mindful of what you're consuming. Uh I'll say that not just about drinking, but about a lot of things. Like it is important. There is a possibility of addiction with something like alcohol um it isn't the best thing for your your health and your body and so it is important to be conscious of that um and i think that if the temperance movement has evolved into this kind of like mindful consumption of alcohol then that's fine i think that's great i mean (laughs) they're they are part of the reason that we have warning labels on alcohol bottles and other things like Mm -hmm. tobacco and you know so there there is a lot of good that spurred from it when it comes to our education our knowledge on alcohol and alcoholism um as well as obviously domestic violence that came out of it once the women were involved i feel like that was always a major talking point with a lot of women as well as gaining their own independence which yeah absolutely all, all of that is good all of that is so good i just got so minnesota there Oh dear. oh dear. Um oh gosh. Well, I remember we went into this episode being like it's going to be a short one. Well, no. Mm, so, <laughs> never mind. We're just really good talkers. That's the thing. That's I right. I think we could talk about nothing for an hour quite easily. <laughs> our our listeners would agree. Li- <laughs> They're just like, yeah, definitely. Uh everybody, thank you so much for listening to our third week of women's 
History Month coverage. We so appreciate you tuning in and listening. If there is anything that you want to send us, news stories, uh, topics that you want us to cover in the future, anything like that, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us and follow us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go to the group page and chat with the other listeners and then go to the business page and leave us a review if you haven't done so already. And it's even more important for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way for us to get seen, have other people listen to us, and all of that kind of stuff. So if you haven't reviewed us already, go ahead on Apple Podcasts, and we will feature you on our Instagram for Reviews Day Tuesday with our review. All right, that's all we got for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.